If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the final passage in our short series in this Old Testament prophet, Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at all 11 verses. This is the conclusion to Jonah's rather remarkable ministry, but it's perhaps not the conclusion that we would expect or that we would write. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You can follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of Christ, beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that You are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray as we consider God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that You would please open our hearts and minds now to understand the Word of God. We know, Father, that it is a supernatural, spiritual task to hear the Bible with ears of faith, that we cannot do this on our own. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, which is itself an evidence of Your grace to undeserving people like us. And so we ask, Father, that You would unstop our ears and that You would clear up our mind's eye that we might see and understand and believe what You have spoken. Father, please protect us from presuming that we know what Your Word would want to say to us today. Please, Father, give us humility to hear what You intend for Your people to hear. Father, please keep me from error and please give Your people discernment that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, that our lives would come more and more in line with who You are. We ask this, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. Amen. 
Everyone, it seems, loves a storybook ending. Whether it's a fairy tale that ends happily ever after, or an underdog that somehow dethrones the champion, we're drawn to narratives that end with a satisfying sense of closure. You know the kind of stories I'm talking about. Where things work out, problems are resolved, lessons are learned, desires are fulfilled, all the bad things come undone, and only good things remain. We're drawn to those kinds of stories because in part they make us feel good. They give us a sense of hope. We like storybook endings. This passage, however, is not a storybook ending. Last week's chapter, chapter 3, would have been the storybook ending to Jonah, would it not? The wayward prophet becomes the faithful evangelist whose ministry results in revival in one of the most wicked cities on earth. There's a lot that will preach from that ending. Mercy for the wayward, grace to the undeserving, incredible revival. All of that happens in Jonah chapter 3. And that would have been the ideal storybook ending. Just stop right there, God, and we're all happy. And yet, that's not where the book ends. After the revival of chapter 3, there is the, the letdown of chapter 4. As you heard it in our reading, there is no happily ever after for the Lord's prophet in chapter 4. Instead, this final passage is jarring. It's unsettling. It's disturbing, even. Jonah is hot, both literally and metaphorically. He camps outside the city where he bakes in the sun and fumes against God. Jonah is hot, and the bulk of the chapter is taken up with his heated conversation with God. Twice, the Lord confronts Jonah with a question, and both times Jonah holds on to his anger as though he's right and God is wrong. And then, even as God has the final word in the book, the dialogue between the two remains unresolved. Notice how the question that God asks in verse 11 is unanswered. It ends with a question mark. There is no storybook ending here. This is a real world ending that confronts the ugliness that remains in Jonah's heart. And that, brothers and sisters, is the value of this unsettling conclusion for God's people today. That's the point of this chapter. You see, not only is Scripture inspired by God to communicate divine truth, but Scripture is also masterfully composed in ways that expose who we are. Martin Luther used to say that when you read the Bible, it reads you. And that's true. The Bible opens us up. In fact, that's why chapter 4 ends with an unanswered question. It puts you in Jonah's shoes and then forces you to, ask, to answer the question about yourself. Where do our allegiances lie? With the angry Jonah or with the merciful God? What do our hearts desire? Vengeance like the spiteful prophet? Or salvation like the gracious Lord of all the earth? It's not a storybook ending, friends. It's actually better than a storybook ending. Jonah chapter 4 is a final act of mercy from God. Mercy that leads us to examine our hearts, to change our attitudes, and then to take up God's mission to proclaim His mercy to the undeserving, even to the ends of the earth. It's not a storybook ending. It's better because it connects with the real world. As you look at the details of the chapter, you'll notice there's three sections to the passage. The chapter begins and ends with a conversation between Jonah and God. And then in the middle, 
there's the powerful object lesson with the plant. So conversation, object lesson, conversation. It's not a hard passage to follow. And from those sections, I'd like to draw your attention to three instructive failures from Jonah's life. That's right. My three points this morning are three failures. I have officially now broken every rule of preaching. Three failures. But these are failures that teach. In verses 1 to 4, we see grace misunderstood. In verses 5 to 8, we see mercy misinterpreted. And then in verses 9 to 11, we see compassion misguided. We begin then in verses 1 to 4 with grace misunderstood. Grace misunderstood. As the chapter opens, it's quite clear that something is wrong. You may remember that chapter 3 ended with God's incredible mercy in sparing the city of Nineveh. The people heard Jonah's preaching. They repented of their sins. And God relented from disaster. It was a remarkable turnaround. So remarkable, in fact, that we might expect to find a song of praise here like we did in chapter 2. Remember that, friends? Jonah was drowning in the sea and God spared him through miraculous intervention with the great fish. And Jonah's response was what? He wrote a song, chapter 2, a song of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving to thank God for what He had done. So we might expect to find another psalm, another section of praise here in chapter 4. But Jonah's in no mood to praise. He's angry. Very angry, in fact. Notice the first line of verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Friends, that translation is probably too tame. We could put verse 1 like this. It was evil to Jonah. A very great evil. You see, the author is using a play on words to expose Jonah's heart. The Ninevites were bad people who did bad things, and therefore they deserved something bad to happen to them. But then divine mercy changed the situation. The bad people put away their bad deeds, so God did not bring anything bad upon them. All the bad stuff is gone. And yet, how does Jonah respond? It's all bad. Very bad. Evil, in fact. Do you hear the connection? At this point, who is the only person holding on to something bad? Not the Ninevites. Jonah. Who's the only person doing evil? Not the Ninevites. Jonah. Something is wrong. The picture gets even worse in verse 2. Jonah decides to pray which might give you some hope that he's going to fess up and come clean. But instead, Jonah uses his prayer to blame God. Notice verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Friends, that's a bold prayer, but not in a good way. Jonah essentially says to God, I told you so. I told you so, Lord. I knew this would happen. That's why I ran from you. In fact, Jonah even goes so far as to say that his word was more correct than God's word. Notice that phrase, what I said, in verse 2. You see it there? What I said. That's literally my word. So Jonah is saying, my word, God, was right. Now, do you remember how this whole book got started? Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So do you see what Jonah is doing here at the end? He has the audacity to claim that his word was more accurate, more appropriate, even better than God's word. Your word caused this mess, God. Your word got us into this situation. If you had only listened to my word, things would have been better. 
Again, something is terribly wrong. Still, the concern goes deeper. Notice the rest of verse 2 and Jonah's reason for telling God, I told you so. For, Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Friends, you may know that what Jonah says here is one of the more important confessions of faith in the entire Old Testament. Jonah quotes almost exactly from Exodus 34, where God passed in front of Moses on the mountain and declared His name. Do you remember that from Exodus 34? God had just shown mercy to the nation of Israel by not destroying them for worshiping the golden calves. That's Exodus 32. And then He passed in front of Moses and He declared Himself to be a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It was one of the high points in the history of Israel. And it became almost a confession of faith for the people of God in the Old Testament. Who is God? He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, turning from disaster. But here in verse 2, Jonah takes that confession of faith and he offers it not as worship, but as blame. He's already questioned God's Word and now he blames God's character. It's your fault, God. On some level, Jonah understands what has happened in Nineveh. God has been true to Himself. God did what He is. He is merciful. He's shown mercy and grace. Jonah gets it on some level. And on another level, Jonah misunderstands what God's mercy and grace entail. In Jonah's mind, God's mercy and grace are for Israel, but they're not for anyone else. God's mercy and grace is fine for Jonah, but don't you dare give it to someone else, God. And so Jonah finally gets to his despairing request. Verse 3. What does Jonah want God to do? Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Friends, that's a very dark statement that comes from a very hard heart. If the Ninevites are allowed to live, then Jonah chooses death. As one commentator said, Jonah would rather die than live in a world where God shows mercy to Jonah's enemies. Something is dreadfully wrong. But as we've seen throughout the book, God isn't finished with Jonah. Instead of striking Jonah down for his arrogance, which is what we might do, God asks Jonah a question. Notice verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Understand, this is mercy, friends. This is mercy once more for the wayward prophet. Of course Jonah doesn't do well to be angry. He's dead wrong. But God won't let him go. The question, This question is actually the beginning of God's work to expose the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness that infects Jonah's heart. But before we get to the rest of God's work, I do want us to pause here and notice a sobering takeaway from Jonah's angry prayer. You will notice, brothers and sisters, that Jonah's theology is accurate. Jonah gets his doctrine right. Verse 2 is a true confession of God's character. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah gets his doctrine right. And yet, that accurate theology has left Jonah's heart 
unaffected. Or to say it another way, it's not enough to simply affirm the correct doctrine. You also have to apply that doctrine in ways that are consistent with who God is. This should get our attention. By God's grace, I pray we are a church that loves sound doctrine. But we need to remember that affirming sound doctrine is only half the battle. What we affirm, we must also apply. And here's the key, friends. We must apply those truths even to people and situations we may not always like or be comfortable with. A church member wrongs you, but then asks for forgiveness. Do you extend grace to them? What if they wrong you again? Is there grace for repeat offenders? What about a person who has different political or social views than you? Do you treat them charitably? Or do you assume the worst? Are they welcome to receive God's grace like you are? What about someone from a different culture or a different class? Does our doctrine apply to them like it applies to us? Is the Gospel for Americans and Iranians, for example? Is the Gospel for Americans and Chinese? Or what about someone whose past involves a sin that you find especially repugnant? A sin that they've repented of, but still a sin that occurred, that they did, in all of its ugliness. Is that person who did that sin fully justified by faith? Are they totally cleansed by the Gospel? Are they completely adopted as a child of God? You see, that's the real test of sound doctrine, brothers and sisters. We must both affirm and apply. And if we don't apply, our affirmations don't mean much. Do we believe the truth about God? And do we apply that truth consistently, even to people and to situations that don't fit our mold or that we may not like? That's Jonah's first failure. It's grace misunderstood. And from his failure, we should at least pause and examine our own hearts as well to make sure that we're not carrying that same failure. As you come to the second section of the chapter, we find that Jonah's failures continue. Beginning in verse 5, God provides an object lesson for the angry prophet, but Jonah sadly fails to make the connection. This is his second failure. Mercy misinterpreted. Mercy misinterpreted. You'll notice in verse 5 that Jonah is still angry. He heads outside of the city to wait for what will happen. Apparently, Jonah remains hopeful that God's going to change his mind and give the Ninevites what he believes they deserve. So Jonah builds a small shelter from the sun and he sits down to wait for the fire and brimstone. It's really a sad picture, isn't it? I mean, it's pathetic. Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. So imagine the heavenly outburst when the entire city of Nineveh repented. You would think that at some point, one of God's prophets would come to his senses and join in the celebration, but he doesn't do that. Jonah's like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son that we read earlier. 
What's the older brother do when he sees repentance? He gets mad and he sulks. Jonah's the older brother. He sits outside the city and instead of praising God like the angels, he just pouts. But as we've noticed time and time again, God is not finished with Jonah. I would have given up on Jonah like chapter 1. That dude's dead if I'm the Lord. Which is good that I'm not. The Lord engineers an object lesson that should open Jonah's eyes to the truth. It begins in verse 6 where God appoints a plant to spring up and provide Jonah some additional shade. Now, as much as we might have questions about what kind of plant this was or how it grew so fast, those questions miss the point. Friends, the plant is the latest example of God's mercy to wayward Jonah. When Jonah was drowning in the sea, the Lord appointed a great fish and Jonah was saved. Now, as Jonah is baking in the sun, the Lord appoints a shady plant and Jonah is spared from the heat. You'll see that word discomfort in verse 6. That's the same word for angry, evil, bad that has showed up throughout the book. God is showing mercy to this man. Jonah doesn't deserve a shady plant, but God is merciful to him. The Lord is free to show mercy to whomever, however He wants. And then notice Jonah's response, the end of verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. As you're reading that, part of you is screaming out, then why didn't you rejoice over Nineveh, Jonah? There's a sad inconsistency here, isn't there? When Nineveh received mercy, Jonah was exceedingly angry. But when Jonah receives mercy, he's exceedingly glad. The inconsistency, the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness even, it's not hard to see. And that is part of God's point, friends. He is exposing Jonah. He is exposing Jonah's hard heart. The plant should remind Jonah of that very truth that he's saying in the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. But then the Lord's lesson takes a striking turn. Notice what happens in verse 7. Not only is God free to provide mercy, but He is also free to withdraw it. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. A fish obeys God, a plant obeys God, and now a worm obeys God. What is God doing in all of this? He is giving Jonah a real-world reminder of who he is. He is the sovereign God of all the earth. He is free to give mercy and He's free to take it away. Salvation belongs to the Lord, in other words. The worm is preaching. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But Jonah doesn't see it. Notice his response, verse 8. The Lord adds another layer to the lesson. This is all so kind of God. The Lord adds another layer, but Jonah's anger clouds his vision. Verse 8, when the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. The fish obeys God. The plant obeys God. The worm obeys God. And now the wind obeys God. He is the Lord of all the earth and mercy is His prerogative. But Jonah objects. He's angry. And again, like in verse 3, Jonah asks to die. But there's a difference between verse 8 and verse 3. And it's the difference that God has been getting at the entire lesson. Do you see the difference between the two? Why did Jonah want to die in verse 3? Because God showed mercy to Nineveh. 
But why does Jonah want to die in verse 8? Because God withdrew mercy from him. You see, Jonah's problem is not with Nineveh at all. Jonah's problem is with God. He's angry at God. And yet, despite Jonah's hard heart, has God crushed him in judgment, which is what Jonah deserves? Has God utterly cast him away? No, He hasn't. Instead, God has orchestrated this entire situation to expose Jonah's sin. Remember, friends, sin always blinds us. By definition, you can't see it. It always keeps us from seeing the truth. And that blindness is most often experienced in how we see God and how we see ourselves. And that's Jonah's problem in verse 8. He can't see God rightly, and he certainly can't see himself rightly. Sin always blinds us. And so what does God do? He confronts Jonah's blindness. He smacks him around a little bit so that he'll see. He exposes Jonah's heart. Friends, this is why the writer to the Hebrews, some centuries later, can say that God's discipline is for our good and that it leads to a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. This is not God punishing Jonah. This is God training him. Jonah doesn't love mercy, which is what God said His people must love. Micah chapter 6. He doesn't love mercy. Jonah loves himself. So God mercifully does whatever it takes to break Jonah's hard heart, to pierce his blindness, and to bring him to a right knowledge of God. Friends, you may, you may be in a season of life right now where God's hand feels heavy on you. It may be that the Lord's object lesson in your life is exceedingly difficult. If so, how should you respond? Well, unlike Jonah, we should respond with humility. Ask God to help you see anything that you're missing. I know it's a frightening way to pray, but that's part of the takeaway here. Ask God to help you see what you're blind to. Ask God to open your eyes to any area where you may have missed it. And then don't be surprised when His cure to your blindness is another believer coming and telling you what it is that you've missed. We should respond with humility. And then, unlike Jonah as well, we should also believe that God is working for our good. Trust God that even when His hand is heavy, it's because He loves His children enough to train them for righteousness. Jonah misinterprets this whole situation because he misinterprets God. And by learning from Jonah's failure, perhaps we can grow in our understanding of who God is as well. That brings us to the end. Verses 9 and 11. Jonah's last failure. This is compassion misguided. Compassion misguided. In verse 9, God again asks the question from earlier that Jonah didn't answer. But this time, God specifically asks about the plant. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry at the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. It's so petulant, isn't it? It's just petty and small. Jonah basically accuses God of wrongdoing. In Jonah's mind, God had no right to withdraw mercy and take the shade from him. God had no right to destroy his plant. 
And yet, isn't that what, God, what Jonah wants God to do with Nineveh? To destroy them? To withdraw the mercy that he so freely gave? You see, this is actually the wisdom of God, friends. This is the grand culmination. God has convicted Jonah with his own words. Jonah indicts himself. And that's how the book ends. With the hammer blow of God's question. A question that turns Jonah's own words back on him. Notice God's final statement. His final question. Verses 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now we get the conclusion to God's object lesson with the plant. Jonah has convicted himself. Jonah is declared guilty by his own words. He had compassion for a measly plant that lasted all of one day and that he did nothing to create. But if the measly plant deserved Jonah's pity, then shouldn't God pity the mass of humanity that lives in Nineveh? If the plant stirred Jonah to compassion, shouldn't 120,000 souls stir God? And the answer is yes, friends. It's not God who's inconsistent with mercy. It's Jonah. And now he's been convicted by his own angry words. In fact, Jonah stands convicted by the events of the entire book. Jonah didn't deserve to be spared from God's judgment, but the Lord showed him mercy with the fish. Jonah didn't deserve a second chance to serve God, but the Lord gave him the same commission to preach a second time. Jonah didn't deserve the shade of a plant, but the Lord gave it for a season. Why then can God not show mercy to Nineveh? What reason does Jonah have to be angry at him? There's no reason. If salvation belongs to the Lord, then God's people must praise Him even when His mercy confounds what we expect and even when His grace convicts us of the fact that we're far more self-righteous than what we tend to think. But I want to press it a little further. I want you to see the case that God makes for His own compassion. In these final verses, God makes it clear that His compassion is the right thing to do. The Ninevites. Think about the Ninevites. They're a wicked people. But nevertheless, they are people made in God's image. They belong to Him as the Creator. Therefore, it's God's right as the Creator to care about those whom He has created. 120,000 souls made in the image of God. He's right to show pity to them. What's more, God's compassion is right because of His work of common grace for Nineveh. Jonah didn't work for the plant. He didn't make it grow. But God caused Nineveh to grow. God caused Nineveh to prosper. It was God who brought the rain on Nineveh's crops. It was God who gifted Ninevites to organize and administrate a city of such great size. Jonah didn't work for the plant, but God did work for Nineveh. And therefore, why shouldn't God pity these people for whom He has cared? But even still, God's compassion is right because the Ninevites are like children in their understanding. Notice verse 11 where God says the people did not know their right hand from their left. What does that mean? Well, it means that Nineveh didn't have nearly the spiritual advantages that Israel had. Nineveh did not have God's revelation in His Word. 
The Ninevites did not have God's written law. They didn't have the priestly sacrificial system. They didn't have the ministry of God's prophets. Compared to Nineveh, I mean, compared to Israel, the Ninevites were like mere children in their understanding of God. And how long did God endure with Israel? Centuries. Should He not have pity on these people who don't know their right from their left? I hope you see the gravity of this, friends. Chapter 4 is not simply an object lesson about Jonah. This is about understanding the heart of God. The kind of God that He is. It is His right to show mercy. And it is right for Him to do so however He pleases. To whomever He pleases. Even the Ninevites. Ninevites. These are people who flayed their enemies alive and hung their skins on the wall of the city for everyone to see. Even the Ninevites are made in His image. Even the Ninevites are recipients of His common grace. Even the Ninevites are in need of greater revelation. This is who God is, brothers and sisters. Whether it's Nineveh or Amsterdam or Vegas or Little Rock, God has pity on people made in His image. Yes, He will judge the world in righteousness. That is certainly true. Nothing that I'm saying today is meant to mitigate the impending judgment of God. He will certainly judge the world in righteousness. And even until that day, until the very last moment before the trumpet sounds, God has pity on this world. He has compassion on those whom He has made. He extends mercy so that sinners would come to repentance. And therefore, the question that confronts us at the end of this book, I said it on the very first week, and I'm going to end with it now. The question that confronts us at the close of this book is whose heart do we share? Jonah's or God's? You'll notice the book ends with God's question unanswered. There's no answer. That's the point. Our first concern is not with Jonah's answer. It's with our own. Whose heart do we share? Jonah's or God's? So let me just ask you some questions. When we look at the world around us, full of so much heartache and wickedness and evil, is our inclination only judgment or is there mercy too? When you see people rebelling against God in thought, word, and deed, is your first instinct to hope for their downfall? Or is it to speak with them about the mercy of God in Christ? Is your first instinct to just wag your head and say, those fools? Or is it to engage them with the message of God's mercy in Christ? Are you quick to point out all the things that are wrong with our culture, but then slow to engage with your own neighbors, co-workers, and friends who need the mercy of God? A wise man once told me it doesn't take a wise man to point out what's, what's wrong with something. It does take a wise man to speak of the mercy of God in Christ. Are we willing to stand on the corner and pronounce that God will soon overthrow the wicked while at the same time refusing to go into the trenches of this fallen world to demonstrate God's heart for those whom He has made? As we sing songs that declare that salvation belongs to the Lord, do we also recognize how that same truth compels us and indeed commands us 
to take the good news of God's mercy even to the farthest reaches of the globe? Whose heart do we share, Jonah's or God's? Brothers and sisters, there's so much that we could say in response to this final chapter. There's a lot of self-examination to be done. There's a lot of questions to be answered. There's a lot that we could say. But perhaps the best place to start is by asking God to do for us what He did with Jonah, to expose where our hearts are hard. It's not a question of, do we have hard hearts? It's just where. To expose where our hearts are hard. To expose where our eyes are blind. And then to help us to understand that if we're going to proclaim mercy, we have to be merciful people. To live out the mercy that God delights to show. If God pitied Nineveh, should we not also pity those around us as well? I pray that we would. We said it at the outset, it's not a storybook ending, is it? It's challenging on many levels. But I trust that's actually better for us. It's always good, friends, when our hearts and minds and actions, when they come more in line with who God is, it's always for our good. He is the God of mercy and grace. And as believers, we've received that mercy and grace in Christ. And now we have the responsibility of being messengers of that grace until the day that Christ returns. And so, may we be faithful. And may we rejoice at every instance of God's mercy, even and perhaps especially the ones that confound us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please help us? We want to be people who affirm and apply the truth of who You are. Please help us to see ourselves rightly, God, so that we might come more in line with Your heart, which is a heart that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us, Father, to be repentant where we need to repent. Help us, God, to believe where we have lingered for far too long in unbelief. And help us, Father, to obey where perhaps we have either been ignorant or where we've even refused to do so. We pray, God, that we would learn from the failures of the prophet Jonah. And that we would put into practice, Father, the truth of who You are and that the world would see, the nations, Father, would come in to rejoice. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Please use us, Father, as vessels of Your mercy and grace to the undeserving. And help us to remember to do so because that's who we were. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.